Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. I'm very excited for today's episode, which was a, a wide-ranging conversation with my friend David Brooks, who's the veteran New York Times columnist, Atlantic contributing editor, and a regular on PBS at NewsHour, as well as the author of many, many books, most recently, The Second Mountain. 21 years ago, David wrote a book about a group he called Bobos, the bourgeois bohemians who combined countercultural tastes and attitudes with traditional economic success and who he argued became the dominant class in America. And back then, David believed that as elites go, the Bobos weren't bad at all. But in his latest essay for The Atlantic, just published, he has some pretty sharp words for them, or I should probably say for us, and and the way we've created a, a hereditary meritocracy by hoarding opportunity for our own kids, how we've fallen down on the job as a leadership class, uh, how we've condescended to the less successful in society, and how we have actively contributed to segregation and inequality. We talk about what class means today, as opposed to, say, tribe, and uh, why he now believes that economics is more important than he did even just a few years ago uh, in politics and society. We talk about uh, what he would do if he was advising the Republicans or the Democrats. Um, we talk about some aspects of the culture wars. And we end with a discussion on his new work, which is leading to a, a new book, on the importance of social recognition, on the importance of being seen by others. So as that brief taste, I think, indicates, it's a it's a pretty broad-ranging conversation, one I hugely enjoyed, and I hope that you do too. David Brooks, welcome to Dialogues. Great to be with you, Richard. Well, th thanks for coming on. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a long time, and it's very, as it turns out, very timely because you have a, a new essay out in The Atlantic on issues that we're both interested in, class, inequality, culture, and, and politics, and so on. So I, I, I want to start with that. It's, it's titled How the Bobos Broke America. And why that's a particularly good title for those who followed your work is, of course, you are the creator of the Bobos. So you're the, you're the man who 21 years ago invented the Bobo uh, and now, just as it's coming of age, turning against it. And, and, and <laughs> so, so this is psychologically fascinating as well. So just, just for the handful of people who don't know about your book, Bobos in Paradise from 2000, could you briefly define Bobo, Bobos um, and then maybe say a little bit about you know, why why you've soured somewhat on your own creation. Yeah, I named them. I didn't create them. I think their parents created them. But, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I went to high school in a place called Radnor, Pennsylvania, which is 13 miles west of Philadelphia on the main line. And it had a, a culture, and the, it was the culture of the WASP establishment, basically. Catherine Hepburn, that, that was the culture. And that was a certain leadership class. And so I went to high school there, and it was extremely boring. Uh, and people wore duck ties and green pants and they they did what we then called preppy and then i go to work at the wall street journal and then i spend five years in europe between 1990 and 1995 and i come back and there's an anthropology the very first anthropology store and the old wasp establishment would not have named a store after an academic discipline mm -hmm. there was a whole foods one of the early whole foods there were a whole bunch of coffee shops celebrating artists on the left bank of Paris. There was a whole new culture. And basically, I was looking at people who had combined 60s values and 90s money. And so they, the Bobo stands for bourgeois bohemian. 
And so they were bourgeois. They were suburban shoppers. And you can see them if you go to Palo Alto or Winnetka, Illinois, or many places. Uh, but they had this ethos that we're against the establishment. We're anti-establishment. We don't like those rich people. We don't care about money. And so a lot of that book was making fun of their code of financial correctness, which says it's vulgar to spend money on a yacht but it, or a chandelier, but it's super cool to spend money, 20000 bucks on an August stove. Mm-hmm. Because that's a show of your foodie expertise or a slate shower stall because slate is sort of earthy. In those days, everything smooth was bad. Everything textured was good. So distressed floors, Peruvian fabrics. Uh, and so it was a, it was a, it was a outward commercial display, a consumeristic display, but it was of a new establishment. And basically the, the information age rewarded ideas with money. And if you could get into a competitive school, it didn't matter if your father didn't come over, you know, on the Mayflower or Grandsisters, you suddenly had access to the new elite and the meritocracy created another elite. And I wrote in that book in 2000, I mentioned this in the Atlantic piece, I wrote, this is going to be an open elite because all you have to do is get the right test scores. You don't have to be born in the right families. And as you've written, (laughs) that turned out to be completely wrong. It really helps to be born into the right family because your mom and dad have, A, passed down a certain gifts and certain privileges. They've invested massively in your education. They've given you the right internships, as you've written. And so if you go to 38 top schools, you've got more students from the top 1% of earners than the bottom 60% of earners. you got the top quarter percent of earners uh, take 75% of the places and the bottom quarter almost none. And so we've created a hereditary meritocracy. And this class has not only controlled our academic roots up to ultimate success, they moved into big cities, uh, jacked up the real estate prices there, and taken over the Democratic Party, as they've taken over left parties all around the Western world. And so they've become a hereditary uh, class with lots of power. And that's the one thing, I mean, you're very honest about this in your Atlantic piece. You actually say, you, you have this nice, uh, you say it's one of the most naive sentences I've ever written. And the sentence you quote from, from your previous work is, the educated class is in no danger of becoming a self-contained caste. Anybody with the right degree, job and cultural competencies can join. Now, actually, maybe that last bit, as I read it again, cultural competencies carried more weight than than you could have realized at the time. Because, of course, if those cultural competencies and degrees are acquired, then you do end up with this self-contained sort of elite. And so in some ways, that leads to the next problem with with this elite, with this new elite, which is, first of all, they've mastered the meritocracy. Right. And then transmitted the merit required for success to their children. So it has become less, it's more closed than open. But the second thing is, they're kind of jerks about it in the sense that because they think they're meritocrats, they don't have any of the sense of, of leadership that would be required towards others. Right. And so if you use the phrase noblesse oblige, then immediately you call you immediately tie yourself with exactly the brush that you're talking about the kind of person that says that but and i have almost no french to be clear but but that idea of noblesse oblige is is that actually you recognize your own privilege and therefore feel obliged to do more for those who are less privileged but if you convince yourself you've got there by your own merit then you don't feel any of that sense of it and so you as you, you write in the essay the there is actually a you, you, you actually, I'll, I'll quote directly from it here. You say, steeped in an outsider pseudo rebel ethos, we never accepted the fact that we were a leadership class and therefore never earned the legitimacy and trust that is required to lead. So, 
in some senses, this group never never saw themselves as leaders, right? They were anti-establishment, yeah, so therefore there's a leadership vacuum. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, I don't want to romanticize the WASP establishment, but the best of them, the, I would say George H.W. Bush or John Foster Dulles or the wise men, if you remember the Walter Isaacs and Evan Thomas book, which was a guy named John J. McCloy, they, they really, A, they served in the military, B, they took time off to serve for government service for a dollar a year often, uh, and so they had a sense, yeah, we are... We are the leadership class, and, and there are certain obligations. And so they died in, in much higher numbers in wartime. And frankly, even despite that stupid Titanic movie, they died in higher numbers on the Titanic because they understood it was an obligation. This was an obligation. Uh, and so they did have that. And the quality of a society is, is very influenced by the quality of the leadership class. And so we now have a class of people who say, no, I'm an outsider, I'm against it. I'm against the establishment, I'm against the system. And when you have that kind of ethos, you're not going to take care of the institutions uh, that we need, like a, a strong uh, a media that actually covers the whole country because we have some sort of institutional obligation, or universities that reach out to the whole country because we have an obligation. Uh, and, you know, to their credit, the WASPs, uh, at Harvard, between 1950 and 1960, uh, the President Conant basically self-destroyed the WASP establishment under the supposition we're, we're in a cold war. We can't have our country run by a bunch of dumb blue bloods who from Kennebunkport. <laughs> mm. but, and so they, they sort of took themselves out of the game without instilling that sense of obligation in the ensuing generations. Yeah, and I think we should talk a little bit later about how we go from from where we are in a sense how do you reinstill that but but let's stay for a moment on the sort of crimes of the bobos of your 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 labeling yeah. okay i won't call you their creator you're right you were there <laughs> you named them rather than yeah. creating them so first of all we've got the they they own took over and dominated the meritocracy so and, and they get to define merit number two is this issue around failing to act as leaders you know they're 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 the worst of all worlds in the sense that they're powerful but almost denying of their own power and therefore of their own institutional responsibility another problem is that they've contributed to growing economic inequality and growing segregation and here you find common cause with richard florida and you actually talk about this in, in the essay he, he the creative class is very similar to your bobos and you both i think point out that one of the issues is the degree to which those classes have segregated themselves and therefore entrenched inequality which i don't think was in your original expectation that as times passed is that is that a fair summary of your view that we've added to that economic inequality yeah and some of it is just by outcompeting everybody else like they, you just you have a lot of money i think there was a robert putnam a study that found that college-educated parents invest $5,000 per kid per year just in extracurricular activities. Mm -hmm. And that's just an amount of money most people cannot rival. And so there doesn't matter how much money Harvard, Princeton gives away, if they're going to use their current admissions criteria, pretty much you're going to get dominated by people who have come from privileged backgrounds. And I teach at Yale, and that's, that's certainly my experience. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing, which I should have seen more, was the assortative mating, that it, it's almost unheard of to marry outside this class once you're in it. You marry other people with college degrees, usually with a similar college. And I should have seen that because the first part of Bobo's in Paradise was a look at what was then the New York Times wedding page. It's mm. changed over the years, but then it, they called it the mergers and acquisitions page. It was Goldman Sachs marries McKinsey, summa cum laude marries magna cum laude. Uh, and so it was an, 
a purely unabashedly elitist marriaging of these two. And when you get two super, when you get two Harvard law grads marrying each other, they're off in a different echelon. So that's another piece. Then there's the piece you wrote about in Dream Hoarders, which was actual things that they did that actively discriminate, actively hold people down. And you wrote about the internships, you wrote about housing res- regulations and, and that sort of stuff. And I didn't imagine we would do that quite to the same degree. And then there's the other thing, SAT preps, there's a whole series of other things. And then finally, geography is just super important. This is Raj mm-hmm. Chetty's work. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a neighborhood, frankly, like Radnor, Pennsylvania, where I went to, you're surrounded by people with the same values. And I went to a public high school, which looked sort of like the breakfast club, sort of normal upper middle class suburban high school, class of 365. And this is back in the, in the 80s. I think we sent 60 kids to Ivy League or similar schools out of a, and that's public high school. So you just had this incredible concentration of people who were very education focused. And that was the normal pathway. I don't think I knew anybody who didn't go to college. It was just like a given, like you wake up in the morning, you get, you turn 19, you go to college. Mm. And so these are all subtle things that really segregate society. That's even more, I mean, even more true today. I think we've, we, what we've seen is a slight decline in uh, racial segregation in our cities, but an increase in economic segregation. Uh, you're right. We've talked about Florida. You've talked about Putnam. Sean Reardon's work, I think, shows this quite clearly too. And so your neighbor is somewhat more likely, if you're living in an upper middle class neighborhood, a Bobo neighborhood, your neighbor is somewhat more likely to be of a different race, but it's significantly less likely to be a different class. Right. So yeah. if, you're, and, if you're if you're white in that neighborhood, in fact, you know, that's true for me, right? You have a black, a black neighbor, but they're a lawyer with a law degree from Yale. Right. So it's so there's less class mixing than there was. Yeah. Richard Ford has done some very good work on, on uh, occupational segregation. Mm. And he finds the most occupationally segregated cities are places like San Jose and San Francisco, where people really have very similar jobs. and They all live with each other. Yeah, so then, so that then creates this bubble, I think, which means that you are surrounded by those of a similar culture, and it means you're surprised by you know those outside of you. So, um, and I will come in a moment to the extent to which we split as a tribe. But I think the last thing you've already alluded to this, the last problem with the Bobos that I think it's worth addressing is political capture. So we've talked about they own the meritocracy. We've talked about their role in economic inequality, segregation. We've talked about their lack of institutional responsibility. I think the last thing is this: they capture the parties, particularly of the left. Uh, right. And then they and then they drag those parties towards more cultural left issues than economic left issues, and, and you talk quite a, a bit about that. Why do you think that that's a problem in and of it in and of itself? I think it's I, mean, I think it's just empirically true, but why why does it why does it matter the the the, the parties of the left have become so bobo to use that phrase that term? Yeah, well, one uh, problem with it is well, one thing is just interesting that you know the Tory party in England was the landed gentry party. And it's completely flipped its class structure with under Boris Johnson. And that, that's just remarkable. The Republican Party was the country club party. And now it's largely, not entirely, but largely a working class party. Uh, and so that's just interesting that that would happen. I do think it has the older Democratic Party, which, frankly, Joe Biden belongs to, was a party that really had its heart and soul in the working class. And Joe Biden's Scranton background is part of that. And so condescension was alien to its nature uh, because it really saw the workers as the really the meat and potatoes of our country. Uh, you would not say 
condescension is alien to the modern progressive movement. I mean, there's different, there's right-wing snobbery too, believe me. But I do think the reason so many people and voted for Trump is they feel looked down upon by this class. If the, the creative class or bubbles, whatever you're going to call them, they control what our friend Jonathan Rausch calls the cognitive the regime, like who gets to decide what's true. And so if you're going to rebel against the class, they reject truth and expertise. They control, you know, really media. And so if you feel unseen, it's because this class doesn't see you. Mm-hmm. And then if you feel looked down upon, uh, it's probably because this class looks down upon you. And, the, and one of the things I really enjoyed researching the article was reading this book called Privilege, which was said, I think, in St. Paul's or St. George's School, mm-hmm. one of the elite St. Paul's, yeah. St. Paul's elite schools. Mm-hmm. And he, the author, whose name I'm not blanking on, um, has this concept of ease. He taught it. Oh, yeah. Seamus, the, this is Seamus Rahman Khan, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he went to this school, and then he taught there, and now he's a sociologist. Uh, and he says, what you learn there is partly, you know, whatever is taught of the subjects, but it's really a manner. And the manner is knowing how to treat your professors, and my Yale students are excellent at this, with the right amount of deference, but also the right amount of chumminess. And so they become extremely effective mentor magnets because they know how to do this. They know they can walk into any room and basically master whatever they find there. And then toward the cafeteria workers, it's this mixture of friendliness that pretends to ignore class distinctions but secretly reinforces them. Uh, and and this is the a manner of ease in which we recognize in each other. And if somebody doesn't have this ease or has this insecurity about the the world that's really been created, uh, you know, walking into uh, I got in a lot of trouble years ago because I took somebody into a, cl- a deli that took that sold soppressetta and all this Italian mm. sort of peasanty stuff. Mm. And this person didn't hadn't been to college was young and sort of did not want to be there. And to us, walking into a Whole Foods is not a culturally complicated thing to do. <laughs> but right. if you've never been in this kind of environs, and I've encountered this over and over again, it can be culturally kind of intimidating. Yeah, it's interesting. This idea of ease, I think, is very interesting because partly because you think of the antonym, which is to have dis disease and not be at ease. And there is a slight tension here, I think, because on the one hand, I mean, first of all, I recognize it hugely, and I I recognize it with some pain in myself, honestly. And it it is this ability to interact appropriately across this vast range, right? So, I am one of those people who actually not because of a privileged background, but but I, I did end up going to Oxford, where you do pick some of this up, where you can hang out with billionaires and lords. Uh, and then the next day with, you know, someone who's working in your yard or someone who's serving you food. And there's a sort of egalitarian ethos to that. It's sort of anti-snob. To be a snob in your interpersonal relations would be a real downer now, right? If you were seen in any way to be looking down on the person in the cafeteria by your colleagues at the New York Times or at Brookings, or something, right. that would be really bad, right? But at the same time, there is a snobbery. So how do you think about that? Because on the one hand, the ease is anti-snobbery of any kind, right? You can't be a snob to have ease. You have to just be perfectly relaxed. But there is, I also think you're right, a snobbery at a class level. So maybe that's the difference, right? There is still, you do, you know, we simultaneously look down our nose at people, but then we also, when we meet them, treat them with respect, or apparently. Apparently, with with superficial respect, I would say, but but exclusion. Uh, So, you know, an open floor plan or open manners, or it used to be to prove your high class, and I I would love to get to Pierre Bourdieu in a minute, but Mm. you would 
uh, say in his day, he's a French sociologist in the 60s and 50s. You listen to Chopin or say, you know, you listen to high culture. And that's no longer a status marker anymore. Anybody can listen to high culture and go, go to the symphony. So being an omnivore and uh, being having a wide diversity and eclectic set of cultural tastes is a sign. And that takes a lot of expertise, a lot of time, uh, a lot of subtle one-upmanship to know which indie band is slightly cooler than what other band and taylor swift is completely aware that indie bands are cooler than her she sings about this and so these are the subtle gradations that you have to be in a certain culture to understand and some of them are even more so it's like sort of if you're in a certain culture you understand you don't quote santiana's those who are condemned or who don't know history are condemned to repeat it because it's too banal. Everyone knows that one. Mm. So there are certain quotations you know you're not supposed to do. It's considered you really haven't been around. And so there are all sorts of subtle gradations to show membership in a club. This is what humans do. Uh, and in you know your old country, it was by accent. I oh, wonder yeah. if it's. I wonder if it's by accent. I think it's a little less by accent here and more by word choice and things like that. I think that's right. It's hard. It's a little bit harder. There is an accent thing. But I think you write about this idea of no brow as opposed to either low brow or high brow. And so let's talk a bit about Bourdieu and this idea of cultural capital, because I think what you're saying is that the cult kind of cultural capital you need now is no brow. It is this ability to effortlessly move across in a very knowing way between different kinds of cultural form. And it's not enough to just understand what's happening at, at the ballet, but you also have to understand what's happening at Bonnaroo or, you know, yes. Lollapalooza or something like that. Is that what you, is that why you're referring to Bourdieu? Because we have to update our definition of cultural capital? Yeah, I, I think partly. First, he, he was a great advance over Karl Marx, eh, who saw class as strictly an economic thing. And Bourdieu understands says it's cultural capital, which what cu culture do you know? Linguistic capital, how do you talk? Symbolic capital, what degrees do you have? And he had this whole range of much more sort of emotional, moral, and intellectual forms of capital. And he showed how those can all be exploited. Uh, and I would say now it's um, knowing, it used to be you knew what wine was great, but now you know, um, like I have a restaurant I used to go to before COVID. Uh, they would tell you where, which farm every pro you know every product came from and i i used to want to ask the waiter that the soil that the my carrot was grown in was it happy soil was it sad <laughs> soil i want to know i really i'm organically rooted in my local farm to table thingy and so that's part of the that's part of the ethos it probably should bring a sample of the soil to the table. <laughs> yeah. That's so the I, next the next step will be to have a right. little pot, if you'd like to sort of stick your finger in the soil that your carrot yeah. carrot was grown in. But I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the column that you got in trouble for when the internet crashed on you because you, you've, you've almost certainly forgotten that that column was ostensibly about my book, Dream Hoarders. Oh, that's right, yes. <laughs> and, and, and you got a lot of publicity out of it. I don't know if it helped Well, <laughs> except, that, except that nobody remembers that it was about... So that, actually, a lot of people will say, oh, do you remember that David Brooks thing where he got into the, the whole po the Pomodoro column? Um, and I was like, uh, yeah, I do remember it. Actually, it was, it was about my book. And they go, oh, really? I didn't know that. So <laughs> it was absolutely zero use to me because, because this thing crashed. But, but it, in that column... 
what the, the pivot was around the kind of sandwich issue that the internet crashed over you over was really you sort of outlined the economic issues that I talked about, uh, or, or if you like the material issues like zoning uh, and to some extent higher education, and then you pivoted towards some of these more cultural barriers, and you said you said. Uh, I've got. I've actually got it here. You, you you said I've come to think the structural barriers he emphasizes that that's that's me are less important than the informal social barriers that segregate the lower eighty percent. And we've talked a lot about that already in this conversation. But but I'm wondering if you've become a little bit more economics oriented than you were and i think that partly because you're writing a lot right now about biden's economic approach you have a new column out today and you've actually suggested in one of your recent columns that by narrowing the income gaps um, biden's agenda would help to to reduce some of the kind of class animosity so i'm just wondering where you are now in that is a very simplistic way of thinking about this is culture versus economics as yeah. the drivers of our divide and i feel like you've moved a little bit towards more of an economic understanding of inequality than a cultural one is that a fair reading yeah i think that is a fair reading what would do you have what year that column was it was probably within the last four or five years. Well, 2016, it would have been like dream, dream 2016, 2016, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think that's a first uh, side note. The one time when if you want the Internet to really go after you in a very nasty way, tell a story against yourself <laughs> where you're the villain. And that because I was so, I was trying to say, look, I'm part of the problem here. Uh, and I'm vulnerable. And everyone jumped on you like. Yeah, I know. I wrote that. I'm part of the problem here. But anyway, uh, but vulnerability has this weird triggering effect on a lot of people. Um, and secondly, I, I do think you're right. I think somehow, partly, you know, if say it was 2016, mm. I sort of missed the Trump rise. And at that time, I was working at the New York Times. I was teaching at Yale. And so I was and I'm living in Washington. So uh, I'm on the Acela. Mm-hmm. And so if you're in that milieu, you see the cultural barriers, especially. But after that, I spent four years um, traveling to three states a week uh, and um, going to 35, 40 states every year and interviewing hundreds of people, mostly Trump supporters. And I think I became more attuned and what I should have what I saw in the economic charts became more visible when I physically witnessed it over and over again and talk to the people who were its victims that the economic gaps are part of the problem. They're not all the problem, hmm. but they're much larger. And government, I'm not sure government can reduce cultural inequality, but government can certainly reduce economic inequality. And I think the fragmentation of society in large parts of the areas left behind by the Bobo ascendancy can be ameliorated by the Biden economic plan. And, you know, I'm, I worry about it with inflation the way it is. I worry it's too big. But when I look at the sociological, if I look at the economic data, I worry about it. If I look at the sociological data, I support it because I think we have to do something big and significant to try to reverse the left behindness uh, and the social fragmentation of, you know, J.D. Vance world. Well, I, I guess it also depends how big you think the stakes are. I mean, if you think the continuation of the sorts of divides we're seeing now could potentially threaten uh, our liberal democracy, of capitalism, then it's worth risking a fair amount of inflation, frankly, right. and, to, and the, to overcome that. Right, I agree. And the, and the Biden bills, especially the infrastructure bill, is massive redistribution to people without college degrees, uh, exactly the sort of people who need, who need the redistribution, and presumably would give them, which is another thing that needs to happen, more avenues up the income ladder. And so it, it would widen. You, you, going to a four-year college 
would not be so the overwhelming definition of how you make it in America today. Yeah, and I, I actually want to turn to that in a moment. But I, I want to talk about this use of class as a category because one of the things that's interesting about your piece in The Atlantic is you, you talk about the Bobos, but then you situate the Bobos within this, basically it's a dual hierarchy. It's like a sort of you know DNA thing where you've got dual, two, two helix. You have, and, and first, so the first distinction you make is between blue and red, and then you just find the blue hierarchy starting with the blue oligarchs, the kind of tech people, and then and then the Bobos, and then you know the, the young people who are woke, and then... You know, the caring class who are people work and and then you do the same on the right with the gentry and so on so it's interesting because you make this political divide and then within within that you have these ladders which are broadly economically defined i would say but then with lots of culture as well and so it's actually quite difficult i think to figure out now where you think the weight is between or politics as a definer, economics, which we just talked about, and culture. And I guess more importantly, the kind of overlap between them is you did still make that red-blue divide. Right. And I think that's right, actually. I think politics is I think politics is becoming more of a leader in this identity stuff than, than a follower. But, but I was interested that that was your decision. Why did you decide to construct the taxonomy that way? It just struck me that we've so polarized as a society, the, the GOP Gentry, who's someone who owns like 10 McDonald's franchises in Waukesha, hmm. He's not even in the same economic structure as the finance guy or the head of the Ford Foundation. There's like two different kinds of economies. Mm. Uh, and so it just seemed we've polarized in these two groups. And within each group, there's rivalry. And it, economics and pure income levels makes a big difference. But even age makes a big difference. I mean, the, the difference between, I'll start in D.C., the people who live in Cleveland Park, which is a upper middle class boomer, area versus the people who meet in Shaw, which is a younger hipster area, if you look at their educational credentials, look pretty similar. But the hipsters hate the boomers because for a whole series of reasons, some of them good, some of them bad, partly because the boomers were hypocrites. Mm -hmm. We were for equality and then we created inequality. But partly just because economic circumstances are so different. If you're 30, your economic prospects are not what a boomer faced when they were 30. Uh, you've got high education costs, high housing costs, and your chances are just much worse. And so there's legitimate anger about that. And so they're educationally pretty similar, but generationally different. And that, that impacts class consciousness. And I, I treat class as a, partly as an economic category, but really as a consciousness category. And it's, it, one of the things that was interesting to me is, you know, in Britain, very, people are very comfortable talking about class. When I researched this piece, the European writers were more sophisticated than the American writers, were just less practiced at it. Uh, and I thought, oh, uh, the, the normal re human American reaction is, oh, I hate talk of class. But now everyone is sort of clued in, yes, we're a class society. I think that old myth that America is not a class society is dead as a doornail. I, I agree. It's actually one of the things that, that I wrote about was this. I actually I think I ended up saying that I missed the class consciousness of the UK that I hate it. I used to hate, I used to hate it, how obsessed everyone was with class and with figuring out by which fork you used and how you sounded and which school you'd been to, which class you were in. It's exhausting, honestly. But I ended up preferring that to the sort of ersatz classlessness of the US where you've got this ruthlessly effective class reproduction machine but camouflaged under this meritocracy and everybody wears baseball caps and pretends to be the same and you're like no you're not <laughs> you know, at least at least in the UK 
I actually wrote this in the Times, I think, at least in the UK, posh people have the decency to feel guilty some of the time. Whereas here, it's like you can be guilt-free posh, which was... So I, I agree that there's this new... And of course, race is a big part, and you mentioned this too, but, but because race is such a salient category in the US, I think that's a kind of good reason why class has been less important. But I think a bad reason has been because of the myth of you know, meritocracy as you talk about it. But I was very interested. I think you're right still to highlight the political distinctions. And in some ways... I'm, I want to ask you what you think about how far politics is now a leading indicator, you know, the cause of other indicators rather than the other way around. I think we're used to we're used to seeing seeing the variables going from education or income or geography. And what does that mean in terms of how you'll vote or religion? But I'm increasingly convinced by the evidence that some of it goes the other way. And there's some evidence, for example, even in kind of religion. I'm trying to remember now. I think I, I tried to make a note of the of the work um, that's been done on this, showing that people who are Oh, Michelle Margolis shows that people who are Republican are more likely to become churchgoers. Yeah, rather, right. Rather, right, right. <laughs> so, so, so you become Republican, and, and it does run that way. It is you know, She can track people over time. And actually, my wife had a personal experience the other day that I think underlined this, which was, you know, let's say, in a, a state somewhere in the South, this guy is trying to use a boat ramp that is not he didn't have access to with this beautiful boat towed behind a very expensive truck. And my wife said to him, look, you can't, this is private property. You can't use this boat ram. It was shared, a boat ram that's shared with some neighbors. And he lost his temper. But almost the first thing he said was, I can tell just by looking at you how you voted. And you're the, and you're the reason that this country is going, going to shit. And, <laughs> wow. and she was like, first of all, she was like, well, how did he know that? And she immediately you're like wondering. <laughs> that. But, but second of all, right. it's like, I don't think you necessarily would have immediately gone to politics as the attack, right? You might have gone to class or something. But, but people go to politics much more quickly now. And so it, yeah. do you think it's become more of an identifier in and of itself from which other things flow on the other way around? Yeah, I think so. Um, um... I think Jesus only goes to Republican households now. He goes through the voter rolls and he figures out. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think and I, this would be my explanation for it. If you're, um, say, a member of the working class, a white working class, high school educated, and you're, you're, you see this class rising, uh, and you don't have a word for it, but you know that those coastal people, they're doing pretty well, and they've got a lot of advantages you really can't compete with them on culture because <laughs> all the cultural institutions are one thing. You can't compete with them on, on, on educational system because all the teachers are, you know, in this class. And, of course, there's diversity within class, et cetera. But how can you compete with them? The, your arena where you can really beat them is politics because there aren't that many creative class people. It's like 20% of the country, as you, you would say. Mm. And so suddenly you have a realm where you can exercise some power and also try to preserve the vision of the country that you think is the right vision which the sort of a non-snobby vision uh, a religious vision i mean all the things that go with trumpianism and so politics has become the battleground and i i think i wrote in the piece in, in the 2000 or in the 1990s when i wrote bobos i i could go into restoration hardware and it was your consumer mm. expressions that was the crucial signifier mm-hmm and that's still a signifier, but now it's really your political attitudes. It's whether you use the word problematize or systemic racism or things. These are, these are now signaled. They're not only real expressions of real things. They're also signals of a certain level of, of, of membership in a certain class or not a certain class. Yeah, it feels almost as if we've gone from a certain kind of conspicuous consumption and then that was changed as a result of Bobo's, but quite inconspicuous politics to quite 
I mean, you actually quote, I think, Elizabeth Holkett's some of small things to, to actually inconspicuous consumption. Uh, and she has this great story of people cutting the price tags out of their dresses so that their um, uh, housekeepers couldn't see how much money they were spending right, right. <laughs> because they, they were so embarrassed by it. But quite conspicuous politics. Right. Uh, and so you can go you, you know, back to your point about being quite careful about how you show your wealth through consumption. But you do show your politics through your yard signs. Um, through the flags you raise. It's actually quite striking how many signs are still up, actually. You know, I yeah. think someone could do a study sort of saying that actually ha- the, the, the time elapsed after an election finishes, that signs are still up, is a mark of the dysfunction of a society because there are a lot of signs still yeah. up. And so I think both on left and right, that's become a, quite an, an important marker. And that leads me to wonder whether it's useful to think about class at all. I think you made a good defense of how it still has some value. But it's almost more like tribes. When I looked at your taxonomy, you've got you've got politics. You've got it's almost as if you have like the tribe of people in Greenwich, Connecticut, voting for you know Trump, and the tribe of people in Northeast Tennessee voting for Trump. They, they, they are different tribes, right. but they form they form an alliance of one kind or another, right? So the blue bloods support Trump because he'll keep their taxes low, and you know populist regatta, to use your term, vote for Trump because it's a cultural expression. And they sort of just very, very, it may be an uneasy alliance, but they form an alliance. And then there are other tribes around the place. So I almost think this kind of tribal way of thinking of it as tribes is almost more useful in thinking of it in terms of yeah. classes now. I think that's changing a, a little. Like I happen to have done research into Greenwich. Uh, and so Greenwich went for Biden two to one. Mm. Uh, and it used to be until very recently that most rich places were red, were mm. Republican and most rich people were Republican. Mm. Then it became true that most rich places were Democratic. And then most, but still most rich people, the individuals were still Republican, the top 1%, top 5%. And the, the reason those rich places like Greenwich were, were blue was because they got a lot of teachers, professors, other professionals who were more likely. But now, it's, it's, if you take the top 5%, they're more Democratic than Republican. And so I, I do think there's an economic element that the slowly, not entirely, there's different kinds of rich people. But it, it, income has become a pretty terrible predictor of how you're going to vote. And I quote a Piketty study on mm. this. But education levels have become quite a, quite a good predictor. Yes, I think, I think that's right. I guess I was probably thinking of the Greenwich, I may be getting my geography wrong, Greenwich Republican Party who went for Trump as opposed to Jeb Bush. Um, trying to, I'm trying to channel Evan Osnos at this point, and, uh, and I'm worried I've got the wrong place. Yeah. But, but I, I you read could, his piece for this piece, yeah. Yeah, there's like a country club republic, and it was, it's very interesting how even these sort of very, very blue blood, right, uh, old stuff that you were referring to earlier, m- most of those Republican parties at a local level did, did go for Trump. Um, yeah. and, and then and, again. Yeah, and this is something else I've noticed, and this is really is how tribalism works. So I I go to these events, I cover events where politicians go, and I cover events where Republican politicians go, and where Republicans' politicians go is where Republican donors are. And so I go to conferences where there are a ton of Republican donors, the big donor class. And in 2015, they were all anti-Trump. They, you know, they wanted Bush or Rubio, whoever. Uh, 2016, they voted for him because they didn't like Hillary. By 2020, they were enthusiastically pro-Trump. And I was at a table with a bunch of donors, and somebody asked, let's say we could bring Mitt Romney back to run against Trump in 2024. Who would you support? Trump. Hmm. And so I think that's a a fact that, you know, the the people who hate me hate him, and he's the leader of my team. And I think that's just tribal psychology kicking everybody into loyalty to the head man. 
And so that part, I think, is, is tribal. And do you think that will now change? I wanted to ask you what your sort of political read is now on the Republican side. We can come back to the Democrats maybe, but but where do you think this is going to play out on the Republican side? Because you're right, once it's in once it's in place, that tribal instinct is quite hard to get to to get to get out. Right? So you, have to, you have to do some sort of ex- exorcism. It feels like of the Republican Party to get rid of <laughs> right. Trump. But where where do you think Republicans will go? And put differently, where would you be advising them to go? Should they turn to you for counsel? Yeah, if they if I. I would just say be against the creative class. There's, there's always going to be a market for that. You don't have to have a policy agenda. You don't have to do anything. Just be against those people. And you mm-hmm. can call them the media or whatever you want to call them. You're against those people, whether you're in the U.K. or Italy or Canada even. Uh, there's gonna, there's, there's, we've shown there's a market for that. Hungary, famously, these days. Yeah. Um, and, and so that would be my political advice. And they're pretty good at exploiting that. You know, I think the CRT is par- partly... C- this opposition to critical race theory is partly a racial, not even a dog whistle, just a whistle. Mm. Uh, but it's also a bit, oh, those people are taking over our schools. They've got these big, long words, problematize intersectionality. And that, that's sort of, it's not only a racial menace, it's a class menace. And so they know how to pick the symbols of, um, that'll get this cultural animosity going. Yeah, actually, there was uh, there's this blogger Slate Star Codex. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you wrote. He he had a piece uh, advising the Republican Party uh, along these lines. Actually, he said talk about. I think it was called something like talk about class. But what he really was, it was entirely negative. It was entirely just a launch an assault against the Ivy League, against the media, etc. Yeah, and galvanize all of this. And and it does seem that could be quite a, quite effective. And I also wonder whether or not. I mean, Biden is obviously as you say in the piece, trying to sort of stay out of some of these cultural issues and just deliver on some bread and butter economic issues. But you do wonder whether the rising crime, for example, and the growing problems on the southern border and immigration could actually, combined with the anti-political correctness, critical race theory, com- create quite a powerful political cocktail for Republicans if they know what to do with it yeah, in the midterms. I, first, I should say I've been slagging off on the bobos a lot, but the, the people who reacted against reacted against the new class hierarchy for understandable reasons, but they reacted in the most despicable possible way. I mean, in a way that denies truth, that, that plays, you know, that manifests in a racial animosity. So I don't want to seem to be suddenly defending the Trump movement as some sort of righteous response to elitism. It's a despicable response to elitism. Right. Um, but as for the future Republican Party, I mean, I look at the issue mix that's out there. We already saw in the New York pr- primary race. Crime immigration, and the sense of somebody's taking over the schools. Those are three powerful voting issues. And those are issues that I imagine the Republican Party is going to run on in in the foreseeable future. Yes. Uh, And as you say, Biden, Biden's done a pretty good job so far of keeping himself, you know, distant from that and just uh, delivering on it. And and so that leads me to think about where now for the parties of the left, because you rightly identified the. I I agree with the Bobo takeover. In fact, arguably having worked for Blair uh, um, and and so on, I was part part of that. And in fact, there's this um, you probably know this joke, but there's a there's a, a great joke about the Miliband brothers. Um, obviously, Ed Miliband became the leader of the Labour Party when beating his own brother, as you know, uh, should probably be David. But David was Blair's foreign secretary and ran the number 10 policy unit. And I, I worked with both of them. But 
their father, Ralph Miliband, was a famous Marxist intellectual. And so the joke about the Milibands was always that Ralph Miliband always said the Labour Party would betray the working class. <laughs> and his sons have done everything in their power <laughs> to make yeah. that come true. And it's like many good jokes, it works because it had, it had just enough truth in it. So I think you're right about what happened to the parties of the left. Biden's tacking back as as far as one can tell, towards more of that economic bread and butter issue, but largely by avoiding the culture war issues rather than confronting them. And do you, I'm, I'm just wondering now to put your other hat on, advise the, the Democrats, like how, how, do they, how do they face that Republican threat? But also can, can Biden continue to do that? Because the culture war issues are not going away just because he's ignoring them. Yeah, I think he, he's absolutely right to do that. Most of the culture war issues have nothing to do with the federal government. It's Confederate statues or, you know, CRT. It's like you can be president and really not have a position about this. And to the extent that he could divorce government from culture war, then I think that's the absolutely the smartest thing uh, the Democrats could do, because they still have an agenda that actually does help the people who are hurting. And if I were them, and I think Biden is way ahead of me on this, uh, I would go back to um, Hubert Humphrey liberalism. Uh, go back to the pre-culture war kind of liberalism that existed from FDR up until 1968. Uh, and to me, that's that's sort of the world he grew up in, and, and that's the politics he's pursuing. And I think it's the best possible strategy. And I have to say, look, at we're talking on in a week when, well, in a period when the moderates in the party, the party regulars, let's not call them moderates, but the regular party, have won five elections against the progressives. So I think what's happening is that people are seeing the downside of letting your party get taken over by people who speak to each other in Brooklynese, but mm. don't necessarily speak to the party. And I, I think the Democrats are not behaving the way the Republicans are. They, they're, they're holding their center in the way the Republicans are not holding their center. And so I think they, they understand the problem. I actually gave a talk on this essay to a bunch of Democratic senators recently. I wouldn't say they were totally fired up by it, but, but I, I said, this, your problem is you get seen as, as this party, as the party of um, Shaw and Cleveland Park, or if we're going to talk in New York terms, uh, Soho and, and mm. Williamsburg. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it, a lot of people don't necessarily think the way I do in so, sociological gradations, uh, but I, I think those sociological gradations are awfully powerful in driving how people identify themselves and once they have their personal identity, how they then vote. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the trick is to not take the bait. I think that part of the story of recent politics in the US has been for the, the bait to go in the water and then the left to take it. So it could be, I don't know, bathrooms um, or, or, or gender or something else. And I think what's happening is that, of course, there'll be people on the left who will always be out there on defund the police or transgender bathrooms and so on. But but by and large, the Biden people are just letting the bait float by them and not and not not biting it. And that's actually must be driving the right crazy because what they're very good at is kind of baiting baiting Democrats into a, into a response. Right. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is not say anything. But yeah, I mean, if you're a democratic politician, <clears throat> you want the right going after um, Ibrahim Kendi, not Joe Biden. <laughs> yes, and, and so you know that I, I think they're. I mean, the culture wars have to be fought, but they don't have to be fought in politics. Hmm. And we're going to argue about the history of American racism, but that doesn't have to be Joe Biden's job, and, and so that could be Ibrahim Kendi's job. And I think we can have those cultural disputes, but it doesn't have to be the Democratic Party's mission, the way it has become the Republican Party's mission to have those disputes. 
Yes, and then just uh, I agree, and then see how you know, see how the chips fall if if you like. Was really struck brought onto the essay because of how international it is. That there's a Trump in almost every country. Mm. There's a Macron sort of elite technocrat figure in almost every country. There's a Bernie Sanders in almost every country. And so we in America think our, our politics are so unusual. But it, it looks pretty normal for Western Europe and, and the U.S. Or, or the Commonwealth or wherever. Like, it, this is a global phenomenon, not a U.S. phenomenon. Yes, I think that's a good that's a good point that's well made because it points to uh, looking for the shared factors rather than the ones that are different you know, between us. Like what's different about America is well, actually not very much. It's just that it was expressed uh, differently. And obviously, I thought quite a lot. I'm just back from the UK, and so you, that, that kind of issue of how you know Brexit has played out and so on. One of the interesting things about the UK, of course, is the way that you know the posh people in the UK are able to just sort of play it in lots of different ways. You know, Boris Johnson as the old Etonian, uh, able to sort of do a Disraeli on the British working class, basically, because of Brexit. Uh, it's just, you know, and people well, just don't care. We have that. I mean, <laughs> Josh Hawley, Ivy Leaguer, Ted Cruz went to Princeton, J.D. Vance went to Yale. I mean, they, Donald Trump went to Penn. Uh, you know, you can't be a populist unless you went to an Ivy League school. So, Yes, I think that's another of your very good lines. But I wanted to just spend a little bit of time if possible, talking about what your your next big project is. Obviously, you, you know you're writing these regular long essays, The Atlantic. And we'll link to all of those as well as your Times column, uh, and you have a column out about the moderates. But what about book book length work or bigger intellectual projects? I, I sense that some of the, some of the work you're you're doing here is a sort of prelude, maybe, to what's coming next. A little. I, when I was spending those four or five years really interviewing people, I kept hearing people say, "I feel invisible. I feel unseen and unheard." And this was black people not feeling their daily experience was seen by whites, Republicans and Democrats looking at each other in blind incomprehension, teenage kids who had no one saw them, people trapped in bad marriages. So it occurred to me the most, a very crucial skill for any family organization or nation is the ability to see others deeply and be deeply seen. And so I want to know what is that skill? What is the skill of really getting to know someone, knowing how they tick, and then making them feel felt? And actors have a piece of this skill when they get into character, psychologists when they're trying to counsel people, teachers. Um, I have a friend whose daughter was struggling in, in second grade, and the teacher said, you're really good at thinking before you speak. And that made the girl who thought she was awkward feel, oh, yeah, I'm valued. She sees me. And it turned around her whole year. I had a teacher in 11th grade. I said something smart-alecky, and she said, uh, David, you're being glib. Stop it. And on the one hand, I felt humiliated that she, but on the other hand, I felt honored that she told the truth about me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I felt weirdly, sometimes when you're seen accurately, it's not always pleasant. Uh, in the, my book, I write about, there's a scene in Goodwill Hunting. The Robin Williams character is talking to the Matt Damon character, and he's a shrink talking to a patient. And he says to him, when I look at you, I don't see a self-confident man. I see a scared, shitless kid. And then he goes on about all the ways he's substituting book knowledge for real knowledge. And the Matt Damon character, Will Hunting, absolutely knows he's been nailed. And not only has he been nailed, that Robin Williams' character has listened to him so well, he's heard the thing the Matt Damon character has tried desperately not to reveal. And he tells him, I still love you despite it. Uh, and that's a very high order of hearing. When you hear exactly what the other person is ashamed of, and you say, it's okay. And that's partly the psychodynamic in their relationship. It's super interesting, and I think it does link a bit to some of what we were talking about a moment ago, and one of the ways you conclude your essay uh, is by talking about the moral ecology 
Um, and so you, you have this lovely line where you say, we want to change, changing this sorting mechanism, which is really a reference to the meritocracy we talked about before, requires transforming our whole moral ecology, such that the possession of a Stanford degree is no longer seen as signifying a higher level of being. And so I do think there's obviously a link there between this narrow definition of meritocracy, and you refer to you know, some work there. I, I was thinking a bit about Michael Young's original book on meritocracy, where actually, you know, there's this guy who's a rose gardener, and he's, you know, industrial worker, but he creates the most beautiful rose garden, I think, in the country. And the question is, who who cares? The question that's asked in the book is, who cares about his rose garden, right? Who who sees that other bit of work? So I do think there's a link between your criticism of meritocracy and wanting to broaden out the ways that we see people. But it's important, I think, what you've just said, because what you're saying is, I see you well enough, and I respect you enough to be honest with you. Right. And I don't, I'm just, I'm wondering whether some of what you were saying earlier about this ease and so on is not to do that. It's very difficult, right? And maybe especially difficult now, right? I mean, this could be one of the downsides of our kind of growing concerns about racial equality in general is do you, do you say as bluntly as that? Would you say that now? Would you say it to a black student, for example? Um, you know, here's, here's what's wrong with you. Uh, would you be inhibited? How do you create? How do you create enough of a respectful relationship in order to be honest with each other? I guess is the question. Yeah, unconditional regard. I mean, if you you have to establish a relationship before you can do that, and I think one thing to start with is um, with the idea that that we have a distinction between reason and emotion, between knowing as studying versus knowing the way the Bible thinks about knowing, which can mean everything from studying to having sex with to entering into covenant. It's an emotional knowledge. They did not distinguish between the heart and the mind and the brain. And that's more accurate cognitively. And so to what a lot of the quality of your encounters will depend on the quality of attention you cast on somebody. Is it a, is it a, a, a quality of attention that's respectful, that's generous, uh, that, I mean, I don't care if you're religious or not, but I, I do think the phrase made in the image of God is a very useful concept. Mm. If you treat every other human being as if they were made in the image of God, you're going to show them a reverence and respect, and you're going to be curious about them. And so you'll be empathetic toward them. But one thing I've learned in the research is empathy is great, but it's pretty limited. If you think, oh, I can take the perspective, I can imagine what's going on in their head, the odds are you're very wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a scientist at, at Texas who, who measures how accurately people are reading each other in conversation. And the average is we get, we get it right like 22% of the time. What are you thinking at this second? There are a few superstars who get it right 50% of the time, and there's a lot of disasters who get it right 0% of the time. Uh, and, but you can train yourself to be better, and the book is really about how you would train it. But one of it is knowing how to have good conversations or knowing how to have good com- uh, ask the right questions. If you want to get to know somebody else's mind, you have to ask them. <laughs> They're the only ones who can do You can't guess. You need to tell them. You need to structure conversations with the right kind of questions. And so some of the questions are just to gently warm into it. Is I ask people, where would you get your name? And that often leads to a conversation about family of origin or some favorite relative. It's a way to enter into the gradual gradations of getting to know someone. Another question that a friend of mine asked in a job interview is, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Mm -hmm. We're all afraid of something, but we don't quite know what it is. Uh, And so he asked this. He was being interviewed for a job. He asked this of the interviewer. And at the end, and she burst out crying because if she wasn't afraid, she wouldn't be doing HR at that company. And I've taken to asking that of my Yale students. And uh, about 10% say, if I wasn't afraid, I, I'd leave Yale. It's not right, the right school for me. But I can't give up the prestige because I'm afraid. 
And so there are all sorts of questions. How do the dead show up in your life? How, what ancestral um, influences on your life? Like, I have a Jewish background. The history of Judaism inculcates a certain attitude toward books, a certain ar- attitude toward argument that is, stretches back for centuries. And every cultural group has these century-long influences that shape who we each are. And so the different questions are really not probing. They're joint explorations to what's tacit within each of our minds. They, and they're good. I like the gentleness of them too, rather because they're, they're not confrontational. A friend of mine once gave me some advice uh, say when you're interviewing you should ask people what was it that was broken in your own childhood that you're trying to heal with your choice of occupation <laughs> and honestly it sometimes worked right, right. it sometimes worked it didn't really work very well when you were hiring childcare workers for your children but right. but i do i think it's in this side this idea of knowledge and i'm trying to, i'm thinking about the fact that particularly in kind of biblical language but i guess in the more ancient language knowing was used for having sex with someone right to right. know someone and right. so there was an in and, it, and i think what's important was an implied intimacy in that what it really meant to really know someone right is to be that close to them and i actually agree with your point about you know the theological construct of individual identity so i'm i'm hearing you and list, thinking about philip pettit's line that a truly equal society is one where you you look each other fully in the eye Right. And I think all of your work before about looking down on and deplorables. And so if you just think about, if you think about how often we use eye contact in these discussions, right? Look, look me in the eye and say that. Look down on someone. Or even the way in which in deference, you're supposed to look down. You're supposed to bow uh, in the most extreme circumstances. But actually, Mammy Till's last comment to Emmett Till before he went to Mississippi, almost the last thing she said to him was, don't look the white folks in the eye. Right. Because, of course, to look someone straight in the eye is an assertion of moral equality, um, yeah. which you can be uh, which you can be punished for if if you're not seen as equal. This point about the theology is super interesting to me because I I discovered to my delight that Jefferson didn't write we hold it these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal. What Jefferson actually wrote was we hold these truths to be sacred and yeah. inalienable. And then it was edited later by someone that, that sounds a bit too godlike. So it was edited to self-evident. But Jefferson's original formulation was, oh, this used to be sacred. Uh, and that's a gentle way of saying, I think, that maybe liberal societies of all kinds in particular require a level of mutual respect. And maybe that respect has to be grounded on something other than a self-evident human rights-based secular truth uh, you know yeah. where that where that leads you I, I don't know so you must be are you reading a lot of charles taylor and hegel and people like that as well as, a little bit. i'm reading a lot of neuroscience i'm talk, reading okay. a lot of psychologists talking to a lot of actors um one actor i spoke to you know i asked how do you get in the role and he said i find the one overlap between the character and me and then i build out so he said some people are they put their hands in their front pockets and when you do that you hunch over your shoulders you're sort of inward and turning inward and so once I get in that posture, I'm beginning to get into that character. And so, you know, biographers, if you're writing a biography, you're, you're really working to get into somebody else's mind. Uh, and so I'm, I, every, no, one, no one person has the whole skill, mm. <laughs> except maybe Oprah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but, um, but it, uh, the skills of empathy, but mostly it's the skills of conversation and knowledge. And then finally, knowing what to look for in a person. Like, what are the important things you would want to know? And I do think, you know, you don't ask this right away, but I do think how were you loved and not loved? If you really want to know somebody, you eventually you have to get to that question. 
because the, the, the way we were loved is an important part of who we are. And, and how do you construct your own personal story? What story do you choose to tell in what circumstances? And culture, like I said, the, how the dead show up in your life, like this great book, Albion Seed, about how the different tribes from England came over mm. and created entirely different cultures from Connecticut to West Virginia. And so the, the power of these things over centuries is really very, very impressive. And most of us don't know ourselves that well. So the pro we only discover who we are through this process of mutual revealing and mutual unveiling, which is why if you're sitting at a bar and some person starts talking to you, you begin this process of, of um, defining yourself by feeling each other out. Um, or verbally, I should say. <laughs> you sort of, yes, to be, to be completely clear, yes. Um, but so in order to see yourself, to some extent, you have to be seen by others. It's interesting because people have always, uh, when I write about respect, people say, well, you have to have self-respect first in order to gain respect from others. But I've always wondered about the causality there because it, it feels to me as if being respected by others is one of the ways you will acquire respect for yourself. You can't just, right. you can't acquire respect for yourself as some completely sealed off individual right. and then, and then go out into the world. And I yeah. guess it's the same here. I think you have to see yourself loving and being loved before you can see yourself as lovable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's been a big theme of your work. I think probably pretty yeah. much all along, which is this relational idea of, uh, of, of personhood. So, and the motto of this, um, podcast is of dialogues is that thinking together in relationship and i think that idea of relationship is critical for intellectual development as well as moral and personal so well that's been a great a great dialogue <laughs> and when's the book coming out when can we expect this book uh, can you say publicly uh, or will it get you into trouble with your public yes it'll be it's not for a long time it's gonna be uh, may of 2024 i guess or 2023 something like that 2023 may of 2000 so it's it's not just around the corner Okay, well, um, if your publisher's listening, then you know I'm sure I'm sure he'll hit that deadline. <laughs> so, but it's been great to talk to you, David. Thank you so much. Okay, it's uh, been great to talk to you and to be in friendship with you for the last five or six years that we really kind of know each other. So I really appreciate it. Well, back at you, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. <laughs>